This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. And I've been looking at the gold price, and everybody's kind of hating on gold right now. Buy your Bitcoin. I've been harping on that since August. And gold's looking pretty attractive right now, isn't it? I, I think everybody's hating it. And so maybe that's a good sign. Gold actually fell below $1,800, I think it was yesterday, as Bitcoin was making a new high. And I tell you, following the crypto, there was a whole novel that happened that happened between today's show and last week's show. There was basically a novel that happened. Bitcoin crashed 12 or 13% before Thanksgiving Day weekend, only to recover everything within two days and go to a new all-time high yesterday. So the intensity hasn't stopped there. This narrative that I've been discussing on this program has become totally mainstream. We're going to actually dig up this article, Bloomberg article, the hottest debate on Wall Street, gold versus Bitcoin. Let's see if I can find that. So keeping you on the bleeding edge here, look at gold. I think gold's looking attractive right now. Let's see. Uh, Let's just take a quick look. The hottest debate on Wall Street is buying Bitcoin over gold. And it's an interesting thing. So my take, I'm not rich, so I'm basically in Bitcoin because I look at Plan B's stock to flow model. If you've never heard of that, this is the crazy chart that has Bitcoin has been basically hitting exactly for the last few years, and which is predicting 100,000, I think, next year, and I think even more in the con- continuing years. So I would like to buy property at some point. So I am in Bitcoin, but if I had a lot of money, I wouldn't be buying the thing that's at a record. I'd already have my Bitcoin. I would be buying more gold probably. But I think they have different functions. I mean, they both are sort of claimed to be a store of value, but as Stan Druckenmiller said, you sort of get that extra boost. It's almost like a tech play. And I agree with that. And that's what's so fascinating. Like the altcoins, like just to understand what that's like, why it's so exciting for the people who are involved and I've become involved as an investor. The reason it's so exciting, it's like you get to be a VC. It's like you get to be your own VC. And yeah, maybe some of these things are going to tank, but you also get that sort of 100 to 1 opportunity is that much closer to you. And in the stock market, you know, 100x, I mean, right now, I guess you'd say, where would you go? You would have been in the psychedelic stocks about six months ago, five months ago. Uh, Like that is, you know, there's always a bull market in the venture somewhere. Last time it was weed. Now it's psychedelics. And that's basically the only place where you could hope and you already missed it. It's basically that's already taken off. You can still jump on the train. Maybe you get a 5x, but you're not going to get the 100x at this point. But these these little VC, you know, protocols, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. We are talking about a parallel economy built around protocols. I mean, some of these exchanges, they they got set up by some guy who learned Solidity, the Ethereum programming. By the way, newsflash, and then we're going to get back to the mining here. 
Ethereum 2.0 released today. Okay, the first iteration. Apparently, it's going to take several years to come out. Anyway, I don't want to get too caught up in this, but it, as Bloomberg says, this is the hottest debate on Wall Street. And I think you probably heard it here first. Okay, uh, maybe not. Email, tell me I'm wrong, show me I'm wrong. But I've been talking about this for a little while now. We talked about it a lot last week. And now this week, everybody's talking about it. And so, as Ezra Pound says, you just kind of want to have your antennae very refined. And that's what we have over here. That's what we're trying to do over here is keep our antennae very sensitive to what's going on. Let's look up the Ezra Pound quote. Ezra Pound, a little real knowledge here. Antennae. Ah, the antennae of the race. And he basically saw, Ezra Pound saw the poet as the antennae of the human race. So, in other words, the most sensitive, the most... So that's what we're trying to do. I did a master's in English. So we are trying, we're putting that, you know, don't dismiss the humanities degree, folks. It is a very powerful thing because it's the study of narrative. It's the study of the soul. Before we move on to something something called mining. You know, I remember when I was doing my master's in English literature and the second year of that three years I spent doing that master's in a two-year program, I asked myself, what is it that I'm studying? I read these old stories. I read these novels, maybe even Jane Austen from the 18th century, Lawrence Stern, The Life, was it Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy? I actually read that book. I've read Henry Fielding, Tom Jones, believe it or not some of those great 18th century novelists, and we're going to come back to Tom Jones in a second here, but I asked myself, what am I studying? And my answer was, I was studying the soul. Or in kind of non-religious terms, I was studying the psyche. When you have these narratives of these people and things happen, how do they react, and you're kind of... And in other words... As in the introduction to Tom Jones by Henry Fielding, he said, what is our meal that we are about to eat here? What is it? And he had all these great references. I highly recommend you read the first three pages of Tom Jones, the introduction. And at the end of the day, one of the first great novels in the English language, his conclusion at the very beginning of this novel is, we are here to feast on human nature, okay? And what is my underlying love of the markets? I see it as mass psychology, human nature on a mass scale, okay? I also like to try and profit off of it. I'm not going to say all my intentions are pure as the wind, but we do take Ezra Pound's antennae to heart. Now, back to mining. So gold, copper, 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 holy copper, holy copper, 338 a pound. Uh, you're going to see some very interesting prices in the metal price section. Basically, the industrial metals, I would say, have completely broken out. Like they were already strong, but now to me, that looks like a bull market. I was like, oh, copper's pulling a Bitcoin. You know, like not quite, but things are getting pretty interesting over in the industrial metals. So that's something to look forward to. And also, uh, we, we have Caldas Gold's CEO, Serafino Iacono, 
and he's the CEO of Caldas Gold, and he's talking about mining in risky jurisdictions. This is his interview he did with Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Trish Saywell at the Global Mining Symposium earlier this month. It's a little sort of, uh, there's a lot to take in here, but it's pretty interesting in, you know, mining in Venezuela before Chavez. And, you know, I think this is for if you're interested in jurisdictional risk or you have to work in tricky countries, you should probably listen to this. Okay, so that is also coming up. You know, some of the profiles we're going to do. I'd love to sneak in an earnings report. We're almost at Q4, though. We kind of missed Q3. We've been so busy. We've had interviews to do here. We have a great lineup of people coming in as well. So there is a ton to look forward to in this podcast and at the newspaper. They're just putting the finishing touches on this week's edition. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. And you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have a sensational exclusive interview with Barrick's Mark Bristow, CEO of Barrick Gold. And the interview was done by Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Trish Saywell. Let us take a closer look. You know, keeping with our introduction of kind of big picture, uh, true to form, Trish asks a pretty big question. Can you tell me about your philosophy on management and ownership? And Mark Bristow says, there's a long history here and it's an interesting thing you picked up. It goes back a long way, Barrick back in its early days when it was created by Peter Monk and Bob Smith, who was an operator, was a very entrepreneurial company. It did some amazing stuff and built quite quickly, and it was all about ownership, small office, corporate decisions made with real knowledge of the assets, etc. And so it was run by owners, and even then, and they created wealth. And then he talks about ownership and entrepreneurship. For me, the concept of ownership and entrepreneurship was really a base that we started out with at Rangold. And actually, I really like some of these ideas that are coming up here. Our remuneration at Rangold, salary-wise, was low down in the quartiles. It wasn't at the top end of the market, but the equity incentives were high. And even then, we had to keep stock. It was a five-year process before you could access your long-term stock incentives. And that built ownership. Pretty interesting incentive plan. So when we put the companies together, John had introduced this concept of a partnership idea. And at Rangold, I always had a long-term equity incentive program that went very deep into the organization. So what I did was marry the Barrick concept of ownership with Rangold's concept of ownership. And here's the part that really stood out to me. Uh, can you elaborate on the culture at Barrick? Great question. By Trish, Br- Mark Brissot, I genuinely believe that our culture is even more important then strategy. What does he mean? Let's see. In all the companies I've run, we've invested in our executives to teach them how to be executives, strong internal and external programs on executive development. So training, I, I think to me, like uh, people need to keep training. Like I, I, it doesn't really get said enough. Like because you can learn anything. And I think people sometimes just forget to keep training themselves. It's so important. You have to keep training. Continuing on to understand uh, their training to understand strategy, global human resource concepts, the importance of license to operate. 
And continuing on, at Rangold, nobody had not been to business school. And then integral to this and the partnership structure is that you lose your partnership in the current barrack if you don't fulfill your obligations of partner. Whether you are an executive or not, you can lose the ranking, so you lose that benefit. How do you look at leadership? We look at leadership differently. If we have a very strong, motivated rising star in our organization, they will be brought up in the organization even though they may be relatively junior in their executive skew. To be able to make it work, it's very important that we reach down into the organization. People talk about succession so often. We cascade that succession review upwards rather than downwards. So we start with recognizing that we want to employ people with significant ability and the gold industry and the mining industry in general doesn't get that right. How interesting. Final part before we move to our next story, but this is very topical for the last three years, at least because of the unloved status of the industry, we tend to employ people at the back of the queue and we've changed that at Barrick. If you have the best people, your business immediately has a competitive advantage. So as a young graduate, you go through a series of processes, starting with technical and behavioral training, then a best-in-class approach developing finance and commercial abilities. Because even though you might be an engineer, our decisions come in dollops of millions of dollars. And so few people are properly equipped to make those decisions. And then we have executives and management development programs. We have to start right at the beginning with young metallurgists, engineers, geologists. They go through certain programs and work through our various parts of the business. And again, you get keepers. People invest a lot of their heart and soul in developing that broader-based skill set. So I just think that is huge. And Mark Bristow, you wonder how he kind of came up out of nowhere, had a fantastic run with Rangold Resources, and now is leading Barrick. You know, sometimes you get the sense that some people kind of luck into their roles. I don't get that sense with Mark Bristow. I get the sense that he's a very smart individual who, through good decision-making, calculated risk, has ended up at the top of Barrick. So congratulations to him. Very interesting interview. If you want to read the whole thing, simply go to northernminer.com. You can find it on the homepage. Uh, we also have an editorial from Trish Saywell on U.S.-China relations and Janet Yellen. Among her other challenges, talking about Janet Yellen, will be Washington's relationship with Beijing. In a trip to Hong Kong in January, she acknowledged that the U.S. has, quote, very difficult issues that lie ahead with China. During the election campaign, Biden called Chinese President Xi Jinping a thug, and in an essay he wrote for March-April issue of Foreign Affairs, described China as, quote, a special challenge. And continuing to quote Biden, I have spent many hours with its leaders, and I understand what we are up against. Now, he's probably campaigning at this point, of course. It was March-April Foreign Affairs, and he's probably trying to sound hawkish on China, but nevertheless, he said what he said. Interestingly, in fact, the Wall Street Journal reports that Biden has spent more time with Xi than any other foreign official, including, quote, 25 hours of private meals and 24,000 miles of travel together. So fascinating editorial from Trish, where she goes quite deep. And Trish lived in Asia for a while, so she has kind of a bit of a special perspective on that. 
Find that on northernminer.com as well, Biden Yellen and Sino-American Relations. Rio Tinto, how could I not touch the Rio Tinto story? U.S. Fund threatens Rio Tinto with legal action over Oyu Tolgoy finances. So there's actually a couple of investors, but the second biggest in Rio Tinto is complaining, and it said that it was ready to file a quote, oppression order against the mining giant. Now, explainer comes right after. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi, mining.com. So an oppression order, the move is a statutory right available to burdened shareholders, empowering them to bring an action against the corporation in which they own shares. They can do so when the conduct of the company has had an effect that is oppressive, unfairly prejudicial, or unfairly disregards the interests of a shareholder. The Florida-based fund said it would spare the company the legal action if it allowed Turquoise Hill, the Oyu Tolgoy operator, to take on more debt to fund the $6.8 billion underground expansion. Pretty interesting. The second biggest shareholder is really trying to tell them what to do with the company and saying, look, we're going to take you to court unless you start taking these kind of actions on your operations. Pentwater CEI... I, I'm assuming CEI chief executive investor. I, I don't know what that CEI is. Pentwater CEI Matthew Halbauer said in an open letter, quote, we do not undertake this lightly, but enough is enough. This mine is a jewel. It will be the third largest gold and copper mine in the world. It will produce tens of billions of dollars of free cash flow for decades. Its owners should be treated as business partners, not as puppets or pawns. Now, it's not clear exactly who he's referring to there as the owners. Is he talking about Mongolia or is he talking about Rio Tinto? This is not the first time Pentwater has taken issue with the way Oyu Tolgoy's expansion is being handled. In April, it demanded a shakeup at the operation over what is claimed was a, quote, massive devaluation of the asset. And finally, there was a similar warning issued by Audi Asset Management, a London, London-based London hedge fund. So you might remember my run-in, if you're a bit of a long-time listener of the show, about 15 episodes ago, we kind of went deep into Rio Tinto, and we had spent six months before that kind of discussing the culture at Rio Tinto. And what can I say? It looks like a lot of that analysis was probably pretty accurate. Let's just say we have more circumstantial evidence backing up our... View. The firm accused Rio, so this is Audi Asset Management, accused Rio last week of holding the, quote, people of Mongolia accountable for Turquoise Hill's failings, An end of quote, after it called the country's government's $7 billion equity stake in the copper gold mine, quote, worthless. So if we circle back to that earlier quote, it sounds like the second biggest, sh- these shareholders are not happy with how Rio Tinto is treating the locals. Like, you would think after the, what I call the biggest story in mining in 2020, which is the explosion of the sacred sites in Australia, you would think they would have changed course. Now, maybe a lot of this stuff was already kind of in motion, but it's really, the troubles haven't stopped for Rio Tinto. Mounting investor activism is just one of the many headaches Rio Tinto has had while building what would rank as one of the world's three largest copper mines when operating at full tilt, now expected to be by 2025 at the earliest, and on and on it goes. So, northernminer.com, you can read the full story. 
Rio Tinto's troubles continue. And finally, two more stories here, but another, you know, I was thinking about Northern Dynasty, right? So the feds, the U.S. federal government, actually it's the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, have now denied the environmental permit for Northern Dynasty's Pebble Project in Alaska after only a few short months ago, saying that they had accepted it. And then remember, there was the scandal that followed it where some activists really were interviewing the head of the Pebble Partnership, and he had said a whole bunch of compromising things that made it, and that were kind of disparaging, I believe, to U.S. senators and maybe even to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I didn't listen to those, so that's but that was the what I gathered from that story. This is just pure like uh, things I, I think I've heard, but I think that was the general gist of the story. So now they're denying the clean the the permit under the Clean Water Act and other federal statutes. So that the head of the Pebble Partnership resigned, as far as I remember, and so it must have been pretty bad. Because now they're saying, actually, we're not giving you the permit. And so Northern Dynasty, and I just thought to myself, yeah, Dynasty is like, what a prophetic name. Northern Dynasty, because this is like Dynasty. Again, I, you look at the Northern Minor archives, you'll see stories dating back at least to 2006 on Northern Dynasty's Pebble Project. And here we are in 2020, and once again... It looked like it was finally going to go through, and now it's been turned around, and nope, it's not happening, and now Biden's coming in. Good luck with that. So Northern Dynasty is calling the decision, quote, politically motivated and intends to launch an administrative appeal of the decision within the 60-day window available to it. The company also said the decision is fundamentally unsupported by the administrative record as developed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers through the EIS, Environmental Impact Statement Process for the Pebble Project. Well... Yeah, it's obviously, it reminds me of that Midas Gold Stibnite project that Barrick is a part of that we discussed last week. You know, right beside a salmon river, like, you know, just let it go. We don't need to develop every single little tiny piece of rock and destroy salmon rivers and pristine areas to make a few bucks. But wait, there's more. And we're almost done here. Mike Kozak, what's the, is it a... Should we buy or sell the stock? Mike, Mike Kozak of Cantor Fitzgerald noted in a research note that he has placed his target and rating of the company under review for the time being. The analyst's previous target price was $2.50 per share, and he had a speculative buy rating on the company on the expectation that the compensatory mitigation plan put forth by Pebble would be acceptable to the cores and ultimately a positive record of a decision would be issued particularly given the fact that the FEIS was supported, this has proven to be incorrect. And then they talk about how the U.S. election may have had an impact on the decision. Continuing the Mike Kozak's quote, we have long held the view that it was imperative for Northern Dynasty to receive a positive record of decision ahead of the November U.S. election. The delay resulting from the Corps' request for compensatory mitigation pushed the ROD beyond the election. And we note that the Biden administration is on record opposing the Pebble Project. Yeah, I think you can just kill that project for the next four years. I don't see how that goes through under any circumstances. It could barely get through under the Trump administration. I would give that, like, I don't see how that has any hope. But who knows? Just an opinion. I have no extra information there. And finally, 
just want to touch on this so that we can turn to the metal prices. Cobalt demand from battery industry expected to grow in the next five years. So cobalt has kind of gone nowhere for a while. But we get this report from Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, and they are forecasting that the battery industry will require a further 100,000 tons of cobalt by 2025. Benchmark's numbers show that 57% of the world's cobalt demand will come from the battery sector by the end of the year, a proportion that is expected to increase to 72% in the next five years. And of course, the main culprit is EVs, electric vehicles, as well as portable electronics applications and mobility products such as e-bikes. And therefore, they are saying cobalt demand should improve considerably from where it stood at the start of the pandemic in early 2020. And just a little quote before we continue, as demand from the battery sector grows, it is natural that it becomes a driving force behind prices and sentiment as the industry is increasingly focused on the new world of cobalt hydroxide, the battery feedstock to chemical supply chain and the forecasted market balance rather than the, quote, old world cobalt metal and the industrial supply chain. So some of these battery experts have kind of written off cobalt saying that they barely need it, that they're using more nickel more than anything, and I think maybe copper too. I'm not exactly sure about that, but that cobalt is actually being reduced in its use. But you're getting a different story from Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. And so with that, let's turn to metal prices and see what's going on over there. I would like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And they are kind of show-stopping this time. But let me not get ahead of myself. So on December 1st, here it comes. I could have had a whole intro on it being December. On December 1st, gold is trading at $1,812.52. That is $7 higher than last week's quote. And silver is trading at $23.63 per ounce. That is $0.43 higher than last week. And platinum is trading at $989.94, continuing its steady ascent. And it is $28 higher than last week's quote. You know, I brought up with Platinum Group Metals two weeks ago, CEO there, and he's like, no, platinum's not the forgotten metal. But I think my, uh, I'm liking that prediction of mine that platinum is kind of going to play catch up here. I I have no idea, obviously. But uh, anyways, very interesting. Platinum continues a steady ascent higher. Palladium at $2,410.59. That is $57 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, this is where things get really interesting. Copper is at $3.38 per pound. That is the highest we have seen it since we started recording these prices a year and a half ago, back when it was $2.61. And it danced around there, went as low as $2.30. Now it's really picking up steam and it's at $3.38. Aluminum is $0.90 per pound, a penny higher than last week. Lead is at $0.93 per pound. That's $0.03 higher than last week. And also not quite at an all-time high, but nearing it. 
Nickel is at $7.43. That is 16 cents higher than last week's quote. Not quite an all-time high, but we have to go back a year and a half to get to these kind of numbers. Tin also higher at $8.67 per pound. That is 13 cents higher than last week. Cobalt, despite what Benchmark is saying, cobalt remains unchanged at $14.51 per pound, but that may change. And zinc, six cents higher at $1.25 per pound. I mean, it was only a few months ago when zinc was at 85 cents, 84 cents, and now it's at $1.25. So we're talking like 50% higher. What do we see here? We see gold looking, and precious metals, particularly gold and silver, looking attractive, having fallen so much. Uh, but they are starting their recovery. Platinum and palladium, which are slightly more industrial precious metals, are seeing a little bit of wind at their back, and the industrial metals seem like they are launching. It's it's the last five weeks we've kind of had a steady climb in almost all of the industrial metals, and it actually looks like it's picking up pace a bit, picking up speed a bit. So watch this space. Are we heading into a big commodities bull market? Are we getting inflation? So huge implications there. Very exciting. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Serafino Iacono. And we're going to hear about his spectacular career. I mean, we cannot forget this guy has had an all-star career in the mining industry, and he is currently CEO of Caldas Gold, and he co-founded Grand Columbia Gold. He's a CEO of NGX Energy International and chairman of Western Atlas Resources. He also co-founded Bolivar Gold Group and Pacific Stratus Energy, among other companies, and is involved in numerous resource and business ventures in Canada, Latin America, and the United States. So, Serafino was nice enough to give us some of his time for the Global Mining Symposium. He was interviewed by Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Trish Saywell, and you're going to learn a lot about jurisdictional risk in this in Venezuela and going way back. So hope you enjoy the interview, and I will see you on the other side. to introduce uh, Serafino Icono, the executive chairman of Grand Columbia Gold. Uh, it's, I think it's safe to say that uh, he is one of the most uh, successful entrepreneurs in Colombia, if not South America, uh, where he, he's been investing in Colombia since the mid-90s and um, has lived there permanently uh, since 2004. He's just had a tremendous track record. And um, I think uh, it's clear that um, he's got ventures in Colombia that span a number of different uh, industries from oil and natural gas and pipelines to electricity distribution, coal, infrastructure, industrial minerals, gold and silver. And over the last 14 years, I think Serafina indirectly or directly has invested with his investors about $7 billion in the Colombian economy. So Serafino, I, I guess my first question to you would be, of all of the ventures in Colombia, and we'll talk about uh, your other ventures later, and excluding Grand Columbia Gold, which we will also focus on a bit later, what are the ventures in Colombia that you're most proud of? Um, my guess is one of them would be Pacific Rubio's Energy, which at one point uh, hired 37,000 people and was the third largest oil producer in the country. 
Uh, actually, it, it was the largest oil, private oil producer in Latin America. <laughs> but not well, to boast. Shown to, at the top of your list. I, I, I would I would say so. Uh, it's it's one of the uh, top achievement. It was done by me and a group of uh, very prominent ex PDVSA uh, people that did that. So that was uh, we were in the right place at the right time and uh, in the right moment of the industry, which is or uh, as we're looking at gold right now, the right cycle. Um, it was that was one of the great achievements actually uh, uh, in Venezuela some of the mines that we built in Venezuela were very proud of uh, Loma de Nickel is a mine that uh, was involved uh, became one of the largest uh, nickel uh, laterite nickel producers in uh, in Latin America uh, I, I started a company with uh, from the beginning until we sold it to uh, uh, Anglo-American and Choco 10, as we were talking about, that was probably one of uh, uh, the great moments that we, that we started hitting a second cycle of gold. And uh, we've been very lucky hitting the cycles is in many cases, uh, whether it's oil or copper or gold, it's the most important thing. No, have the longevity to stay around and to make sure that when the cycles like we are right now, in a gold and silver cycle with there. Sure. I wonder if you'll indulge us and take us back to your early career in the 20s and your 30s. Well, we can go start even further back. You were born in Italy and your dad was transferred to New York when you were 14 years old. So you finished high school in New York. You studied business at NYU. And then in 1982, with Brian Hinchcliffe, I think, uh, at American Mining, you got your teeth wet in, in mining. And they had a mine in Honduras, El Mochito. It was during that early period that you met one of your lifelong friends and often business partners, Frank Justra. So, but then 1989, you went out on your own. And that's why I want to talk about Venezuela a bit more. You, if you could talk about some of the crowning achievements in Venezuela before Chavez came in and sort of ruined sure, everything. Sure, no, uh, Venezuela, Venezuela, we, we're talking now 1989. Again, it was a, a, a changing moment in the gold cycle after coming out of a very bad years in the uh, in the gold and silver industry. Um, I remember gold when uh, we went there in 89, I think it was about $200 an ounce. Mm. And uh, we, we had a choice uh, at the time, we were looking for projects, uh, our choice as a group, but as the uh, Ampac group, uh, we had two choices, either to go with uh, uh, Brian Hinchcliffe to look at projects in uh, in Venezuela or in Chile. Uh, I had more connections at the time in Venezuela, and I chose Venezuela as the place to go look at uh, gold and uh, and other projects, you know, mining projects. After we had left Honduras and we had sold to uh, uh, the uh, to uh, Breakwater Resources, the uh, um, uh, Machito mine. So we went through Venezuela and it was very, very fortunate in Venezuela. We started uh, uh, the first project we went to look at was a project that was left by Lenny Cole uh, called Loma de Nickel, um, which uh, I, I told you we sold. Uh, we developed a project. It was a project very well defined. We went after it. That was 1990 to 1991. 
I stayed with the company and then uh, Brian and his group decided that they wanted to stay focused on the nickel project. And uh, it was time for me, uh, uh, I was uh, 29 years old, 30 years old. At the time, it was time for me to just move on and start doing a, our own project. And I started seeing an opportunity in the, uh, in the gold sector uh, coming to Venezuela. It was the days that they had just discovered, or they had, it wasn't discovered, it was work, but uh, Placer Dome, and, and uh, I, I believe it was Placer Dome. It was such a long time ago. But one of the major companies uh, uh, had come in and uh, they had taken uh, La Cristina mine. So and there was a discovery of 3 million ounces of gold. In those days, 3 million ounces of gold was huge. Still is huge, but it was huger. It was a bigger thing to do. So we went in and we started staking grounds in the surrounding area in a district called Kalamar 88 and uh, El Callao and uh, in the El Callao region. And uh, after a few months, uh, this area became the hottest area with all the junior companies in Canada. I became, uh, through the help of Frank Justra, we did an, uh, an alliance with Robert Friedland in those days and uh, created the Venezuelan gold fields. And we brought in at the time Ian Telfer to be the CEO of the company. He had just left Ike uh, uh, Batista's company and was looking for an adventure in some other piece of business. But that was, that was a long time ago. So we, uh, from there, we, uh, we went in to develop, uh, uh, we started working on uh, Ben Gold, and then I started my, another company called Bolivar Gold, and Bolivar Gold then was sold to Monarch Resources uh, through the years. After that, we developed the first mine that was the Tommy mine that at the time was producing 100,000 ounces of gold. And you sold El Choco mine to Goldfields, right? Yeah, the Choco mine was uh, was more in 2005. It was my second run into Venezuela to, to look a project. We bought a project from uh, Semex uh, that they had, we knew for many years. It was, uh, again, in one of these cycles, lower cycle when gold went down. Uh, this was in 2000. Um, I went back to Venezuela to look at this project and to buy this project. We bought it, we drilled it, developed it, built a mine, put it into operation and sold the mine. And we were producing 120,000 ounces a year. And we sold the mine to uh, Goldfields uh, with the story that we were talking about with Michael Berry uh, trying to stop me from selling the mine to Goldfields. And I wanted desperately to sell the mine because I knew that Chavez eventually was going to nationalize the industry and we wanted to be out of that investment. And you still have one asset there that you, I think you invested like 35 million into, Los Increables. Uh, it's it's Los uh, Increables AMB. Uh, we, we actually drilled it. It belonged to uh, Bima Gold in those days. I bought it from Bima Gold uh, in the uh, 98. And then uh, we spent money until 2007 uh, there. And then it's, it got nationalized in 2000, at the end of 2007 by the government. But we have a claim on the property. It's got 6 million ounces of gold, open pit, 
uh, in, incredible project, uh, you know, four to five grams of gold per ton. Amazing. Uh, well, well, you'll get it back one day. I'm Eventually. Sure. Nothing. We have an expression in South America that says that uh, uh, nothing lasts forever and, you know, and, 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 and no body uh, can resist that long. So eventually we will get it back. Before we get into Grand Columbia Gold, I was wanting to, I wanted to ask you about your, your venture in, in Italy, Sardinia Gold Mines. Was it called Sardinia Gold? Correct. So, so Sardinia Gold, yes. We started looking at the pyrite belt that exists in Europe and it goes from Sardinia all the way to Spain, that at one point geologically were, were the same project. Um, we, went to we went to Sardinia looking for, um, for gold. We, we knew that uh, it, it, it was a very friendly government. It was a time that Silvio Berlusconi had become uh, uh, president or uh, prime minister of Italy. So very friendly to uh, business, to investments. We went there and uh, we bought a mine from an Australian group uh, uh, that was called Sardinia Gold. And uh, it was producing about 70,000 ounces a year of gold and uh, a, a nice amount of copper. And uh, then we started staking uh, two other properties, very large property. One was the uh, Osilo property and the other one, Montolastedo. Montolastedo is still one of the greatest deposits, in my opinion to be developed in, uh, in, in the pyrite belt. Uh, when we started looking at it, potentially had uh, three, four million ounces of gold, open pitable, just difficult to uh, being in Italy. And you also dabbled in the dot-com sector with wave telecommunications. That was a really su big success story for you. It was very, <laughs> like I said, uh, uh, at the moment, it was a very successful thing. We, we took a company when there was a downside of the gold industry. We were left in Colombia with a company called uh, Grand Colombia Resources at the time. Uh, it was our first Grand Colombia uh, with $35 million in cash. Nobody wanted to be in the gold industry. And the dot-com came in and we bought into a company took the investment into a company called Storage Access, which at the time, if you would have asked me what, what it meant, I, I had no idea. It was just, uh, it, but funny enough, now it's what, what would be uh, a, a virtual storage facility. That's what it was. And uh, we took, we, we invested in the company and uh, I stayed with the company for a few months and then I left. Uh, because I honestly, you know, uh, I had an investment, an investor or sorry, a banker from CIBC telling me that I was a brick and mortar guy and I didn't understand the valuation of these companies because it was trading at 150 times future earnings. So I just didn't understand the concept of future earnings. So um, stock went from 35 cents to $22. A lot of our investors made a lot of money and we sold it. And then it was one of these victims of these dot-coms. So I think it's fair to say that you, you, through the course of your career, you have some of the most amazing contacts. Your Rolodex is the envy of many people, I'm sure. And, and I think one writer described it as you've got some of the most important people, past presidents, uh, present uh, day politicians, business people on your speed dial. Is that an exaggeration? I have very good connections. We have very good friends and very good enemies. 
So <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> and in life you gotta have both, otherwise it would be weird. Um, yeah, we are, my philosophy has always been, when you go into a country, I've always worked in Latin America. I worked in the areas where I can have a, a certain kind of a, um, a political, a little bit political influence, uh, or what I would call the know-how and the know-who in the country. Mm -hmm. the, the, the know-how, you have to have it with technical people that do the work for you and that they just don't, you know, they look for projects that are top projects and the projects that are feasible to do. The know-who in a country, it's just as important as the know-how. Mm -hmm. You gotta know, you gotta be like a local, act like a local and understand the local uh, politics and, uh, and be well connected. We were very lucky in Venezuela, I was very close to uh, President Carlos André Pérez. Uh, we were politically connected, very well accepted in the society, which is very important over there too. When I moved, um, uh, when I moved to Colombia, it was the same thing. I, I didn't go to Colombia as a stranger. I uh, was very uh, friendly with, at the time, was the governor of Antioquia that then became the president of Colombia, President Uribe. To me, one of the greatest guys and one of the greatest presidents in Latin America. A guy that the reason that I went to Colombia was because he became president. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was going to be a fantastic opening for the country and a turnaround for the country. And with, you know, our, our goal was always to be politically neutral because we are business people, so we cannot be passionate with politics. So we were friends with President Uribe and we we're friends with President Santos and all the presidents that have been around have been, you know, have been people that respected us and knows and they know that we have contributed to a very large development of investments in Colombia, in the oil industry, in the mining industry, in the infrastructure in industry, which uh, they're very appreciative. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's been part of your philosophy. You have to live in country. You, as much as you to like to be there, you're there, and that's where your business is. Correct. To me, to me, it's if, if you go into a country, no matter what country, I mean, uh, 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 if you're going to be developing business, maybe you can do it if you have a very group of people. I'm a very hands-on type of guy with the, people, with the people that we work on. But you have to be present in the country that you're developing a, a, an asset. If you're, if you're investing three, four hundred million dollars in a mine, you know, it's okay. You can do it remotely out of Vancouver, but it's not the same as you being in the country and knowing every day living the politics the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, you know, sure. I, 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 you, you don't want to be a visitor. You want to be a resident. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do. Okay, well, let's talk about Grand Columbia Gold. I mean, actually, uh, you have one of the former mines ministers on your board, but um, it's been a tremendous success story. Um, and, you know, four years ago, you were trading at 75 cents today. You're at 6.50 or so. Uh, you, you know, obviously significantly undervalued. You've got $110 million in cash in the bank, you trade it two times, EBITDA. Tell us about your goals for the company going forward and say in the next couple of years, you've got expansion plans, you want to get to 400,000 ounces of gold. Talk about uh, your priorities over the next couple of years. No, look, uh, Grand Columbia is a fantastic, it's a fantastic company, a fantastic vehicle with uh, multi-dimensional projects. 
one of the most important one, obviously, is the Segovia project. We are the largest producer right now in the country. We're going to close this year close to 250,000 ounces of gold in production. Company is uh, went through um, a turnaround that uh, Lombardo Paredes, that is the CEO of the company, and uh, myself uh, with uh, Mike Davis and our all of our group and employees put our heart into turning it around from a company that was on the verge of going bankrupt with gold at a thousand to a company that right now sits with about uh, between securities and cash with $300 million in, uh, in, the, in the bank. Mm -hmm. So, and making money. We have probably what is uh, one of the most incredible concessions in Colombia. There is only three concessions like this in Colombia. It is not a concession. It's a title and an ownership of what they call a king's right. So we are the owners of the land. We own 3,500 hectares of land. That's 35 square kilometers of land. And we own the mineral rights, not the government of Colombia. We pay to the government of Colombia a royalty, but it's in a different type of royalty that we would pay on a regular basis if it was a government concession. So it's very important to have that. It's very important for uh, that it is one of the oldest mines in Colombia. It is the number three on grade richest mine in the world. Uh, so we produce an average of 17 grams of gold and it has, it's been producing between 11 and 17 grams for the past 150 years. Amazing. And it hasn't stopped. More than 6 million ounces have been produced in the past. And the last million ounces out of those six million ounces, a million two actually, belongs to us. We have produced since we took the mine over in 2011. So huge, we work three, three mines. This is not a mine, it's a district mm -hmm. where there is 23 mines. And out of those 23 mines, we are working three, on a full, a full uh, scale. And the fourth one we're putting into operation this year, which is the Carla mine. And there we're mining an average of 22 grams of gold per ton. Mm -hmm. So very rich, very prolific. And still we have touched maybe 20% out of 23 additional mines that we're gonna be targeting in the next few years to uh, to grow the profile of the company and to produce more gold. Mm -hmm. Our goal in, in Segovia is to produce within the next four years to take the production to 400,000 ounces. That's our goal, inside goal of the company. Um, but Segovia is only one project out of Marmato. Marmato, we took the, the philosophy of diversifying, not being a one project company. We have Segovia, we have Marmato, which is now Caldas Gold, which has spun off. We are the largest shareholder of Goldex in Guyana, where there is a 6 million ounce deposit. Mm -hmm. The Marmato project got 6 million ounces in resources and 2 million, two and a half million ounces in reserves mm -hmm. to be mined. So um, we diversified ourselves by taking assets that we had hidden inside the company that we were getting no value and started spinning off. We just launched and became uh, a larger shareholder of a company 
called Denarius that uh, we just finished raising money yesterday. We raised 8.4 or $9 million. I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, we raised the money. Grand Columbia is the largest shareholder of this company. And we took assets that were more silver than gold assets. Why did we take these assets? We took them because they were inside a package of concession. We have 240,000 ounces production, or 220,000 ounces, sorry, production out of Segovia. And it's gold with silver. And then we had a concession hidden in, in, in Grand Colombia that had more silver with gold. But when we're talking about numbers, we're talking about on the silver side of this denarius company that we just formed, where we put a concession called Guia Antigua, that is an extension of the Segovia mine, and where we put the Sancudo mine, and now a new acquisition that we're doing. Unfortunately, I can talk, but it's going to be also an incredible acquisition in Europe. These two assets have assets with an average of... Uh, 400 grams of silver, but still with seven grams of gold. So very rich, very potential and areas that are going to be developed. So we, our goal with Grand Columbia was where are we going to be in the next few years? We want to create a company that's going to grow inside Segovia. Marmato now is a company that will run on its own. We have managed to raise $250 million into this company. We are now well-financed into taking the 25,000 ounces a year production that we have right now currently to 50,000 by next year. And by 2023, we're going to be producing 200,000 ounces. We're expanding the existing mine and we're going to be building the new mine where we have this Sona uh, Baja, a new discovery with 6 million ounces of gold. I mean, and it's, it's an incredible project. So, what do we want to be as a company? We want, to, we want to have satellite companies like Marmato, like Goldex in Guyana, like the Denarius in this company, and look for opportunity like Western Atlas, little company that's going to have uh, great potential in the exploration. They're looking for projects here. They're looking for in, in Dominican Republic. They're looking for projects in Colombia. More exploration than anything else. Mm -hmm. So we want to create a portfolio that's got growth, and with the goal of us becoming the producer between Marmato, Segovia, and everything in the 400 to 500,000 ounces a year within the next five years. One of the really interesting things I find about Grand Columbia is your, your financing strategies, which are a little bit different than, than some other companies. I mean, you've created this bond, or you did in the past create a bond that paid a very high interest rate. Shareholders loved it. It was very successful. What was your thinking behind that financing structure? Necessity was the most important thing in a market, in a market that there wasn't uh, people buying that much equity when gold was at $1,000. We needed to restructure Grand Columbia. We had debt in, in there that uh, was a very expensive debt, even more expensive and very difficult to, uh, to, to control. They needed restructuring. So we were being pushed into doing a streaming uh, and doing something with, uh, with, with uh, Grand Columbia on the Segovia project. And we just didn't want to put a royalty on the Segovia project. It would have been just in, insane to have something like that at the time. So we, we came out, we said, all right, everybody wants to have the streaming. Let's try to put out an instrument and we created with GMP, myself, Gene McBurney, that was the chairman of uh, GMP. 
we came up with the idea of creating a new bond that was sort of like a mini streaming, a streaming that was re that could reach the small investor instead of uh, a company like, uh, although I do business with Wheaton and I think Wheaton is a great company. We just took $110 million on their money in Segovia. At the time, the needs were different and was a lot more expensive and less competitive for these companies to give money to people. Mm -hmm. So we said, all right, instead of me giving for life a uh, return on investment uh, to uh, uh, Franco Nevada or Euro Nevada or uh, Wheaton, let's create an instrument that we can achieve the same thing. Get the money that we need to make this uh, the mine develop. So we came up with an instrument that would pay at 7.5% in the case of Grand Columbia, at 8%, sorry, a coupon. And gold was at the time at about 1200 when we did the issue. Of the, of the thing. And we said anything above $1,300 of gold, we guarantee $1,300 you know, $1, gold. Anything below $1,300, we'll put more gold to pay for the debt that we're paying, the interest and the principal on this thing. But anything that is above $1,300, this is a bonus for the people that give us the money on this bond. And this bonus will pay you whatever gold is. If gold is a $1,300, you don't get anything. If gold is at $13.50, the $50 that you have on that gold that it's related to the amount of money that you lend us gets paid on a quarterly basis. So we put an instrument that pays interest on a monthly basis, principal on a quarterly basis, and a bonus every quarter that it's determined by the gold that we put out. Every single month, we set aside an amount of gold that then at the end of every three months, we sell. And at the end of every three months, 1300 goes to pay principal. Anything above 1300 is your bonus. And as we, we didn't know that gold was going to go to 1900 I was very happy with 1400 1500 gold. I was one of the biggest bondholders. I still am the largest. At the time, I think I put in about $15 million on the bonds. And it was one of the greatest investments that we made. And we attached a war into it. So the warrant today is worth, which was a warrant that was done at $2.25. Today is worth close to $5. It's a five-year warrant. Mm -hmm. The bond is worth 109% into the market. It's B-plus rated. And at the end of the day, my return on my investment, it's close to about 19% with the bonus that I get. So... Our investors felt great because they became a, a mini streaming, but it's a limited stream. This bond is going to, by next year, it's going to be all repaid. We're paying it two years ahead of time. That's all uh, well done. So it, it, it was a very successful, which we repeated it now into the Caldas Gold. We just raised $87 million or $89 million into into the same kind of structure bond and it was very successfully placed. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Uh, 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 definitely a great idea to do. And I guess you'll be doing more of those? It depends. Uh, maybe maybe on this new company, this new venture, it's going to be a great little company. It's uh, The Denarius is going to be a, a great little silver company, let's go. I guess my last question, if you just let me put in one more before I turn it over to questions is, what would you be your advice to young people starting out in the business? Find another business. <laughs> it's, it's a very painful business. No, look, it's, uh, I think it's wonderful that there is, a, it's a cyclical business. 
you got to love the, the industry. You got to love gold. You got to love mining. Although I'm a finance guy, I love mining. I think it's incredible. And I look at everybody that is talking about renewable energy and all these wonderful things and all these environmentalists that are going around, you know, telling you how mining is this and mining is that. And the reality is that if it wasn't for mining, we wouldn't be talking on these screens and we wouldn't be having conversation with electricity. And if it wasn't for oil and if it wasn't for gas, we'd be living in the stone age. And even in the stone age, we used to do mining to take the stones to make the tools. So it's a natural thing for us to be in. People should love it and should embrace it and just be responsible citizens and do mining the way it's supposed to be done. It's hard to disagree with that, isn't it? Serafino Iacono, live at the Global Mining Symposium with his incredible career in mining. Even checking out Sardinia for gold. So pretty impressive, pretty cool. Sounds like a great place to explore. Maybe I would even do a little exploration if I could go to Sardinia. Anyways, thank you for joining me once again the Northern Miner Podcast. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory or email it to a friend and share it with all the students you know. And until next week, take care.